pray. Lord, we thank you for this incredible privilege of worship and singing and rejoicing and being glad in all that you are for us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now take the Word of God and make application to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, let me take just a, a brief personal word and uh, tell you that uh, several years ago, we as a church had the opportunity of going to what they call annual meetings in different parts of the world where missionaries will gather together anywhere from 80 to 300 missionaries and their families. And, and so part of our response was to, to lead the worship, we'd take a music team, I would preach, we would take a large number of adults to do vacation Bible school and lead youth camp for these kids that only get together once a year for one week from various parts of different sections of the world. So we got a vision for that. And a few years ago, when the economic downturn hit, for example, in Southern Baptist life, one of the first things they had to do away with were these annual meetings, which really nourished the soul of these people, but they just didn't have the money for it. So our missions committee and elder board had been part of that, and they saw the worth of it, so they stepped up and said, we're going to help underwrite to a significant degree these annual meetings. We're going to fly people in provide part of the housing, we're going to help underwrite a good part of the budget. And so this year we're going to go to two different conferences. One is going to be in uh, Thailand, south of Bangkok, and these are missionaries flying in from India. It's a very difficult place, but they're going to be there for eight days. We're going to have youth camp led by Van Barnhill. We're going to have the general BBS led in part by our missions pastor Dave Bruner. Dustin Rady will be leading their worship and I'll be preaching. So that's going to be part of the fabric of that. And and after that, we're going to go to Dubai, where people from uh, Afghanistan, uh, Turkmenistan, uh, Kazakhstan, different, difficult places, are going to be coming in to be part of a six-day conference. So uh, be praying for us. It's an incredible opportunity, and it's a great privilege to be able to walk with these people and minister to them in the name of Christ. So that's, that's what's happening. We're going through this sermon series called Forever Faithful, and we are a faithful people because God has called us, and He is a faithful God. And so the passage that we've looked at as a background that has led to Romans 12 is Hebrews chapter 10. And in Hebrews chapter 10, really starting in verse 8 of chapter 3 through 10, 19, the writer of Hebrews talks about the superiority of Christ, then he makes application, the superiority of Christ to every other known system beforehand. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system, and he says, consider the greatness of Christ. For example, in chapter 10, verse 1, he says that the law, the Old Testament law, was a shadow of the good things that were to come instead of the true form of the realities. It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. He says the Old Testament sacrifice was a foreshadow of what Christ would do in the cross. He says it is impossible, verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he presented himself. Verse 11, and, and every priest stands daily... Old Testament priest, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away all of his sins. 
Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by one single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified by him. One offering, one offering. Therefore, verse 19, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, one sacrifice, one high priest, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, consider the great, wonderful, glorious good news of Christ. And that's why John Newton could write this letter to a leading aristocrat in England in the 1750s. He said, you serve a master, the Lord Christ, of whose favor and protection and assistance you can never be deprived, who will not overlook or misconstrue the smallest service you attempt for him, who will listen to no insinuations against you, who is always near to comfort, direct, and strengthen you, and who is preparing for you such honors and blessings that are called an inheritance in heaven. And then the Gospel Coalition, which talks about God's new people, says this, the church, because of Christ, the church serves as a sign of God's future new world when its members live for the service of one another and their neighbors rather than for self-focus. The church is the corporate dwelling place of God's spirit and the continuing witness of God in the world. And so I look at this Hebrews passage, and I go to the chapter 12 of Romans, which I've been studying for several weeks, and, and really Hebrews 12 says, I, I plead with you according to the tender mercies of the living God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so Hebrews 1, following, we need to load our mind with the tender mercies of God, and then we will live out the reality of faith. When, when my heart and minds are captivated by the tender mercies of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit applied to me by the work of the cross, then I live as unto him. And that's why we have these brief pithy exhortations in chapter 12 of Romans, starting in verse 9, where he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Don't, don't play act at love, but let it be pure and true. Uh, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing preference to one another. Serve other folks. And, and then we come to the passage we're going to be looking at today where he says this, don't be lagging behind in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit as you serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulations. Be devoted to prayer. And so my thesis is that as the Holy Spirit brings to mind the tender mercies of the living God, I live these realities out. I don't lag behind in zeal, but I am fervent in the Holy Spirit. Now, in chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I said when we studied that, 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 that my concern is that often we spend so much time saying, Don't be conformed, don't be conformed. And really, I think when you look at the text, the way we're not conformed to the world's patterns is by being transformed by the renewing of our mind. 
You don't sit around saying, don't do this, don't do that. Primarily, you primarily sit around saying, man, look at the glorious reality of all that Jesus is for me. Now go for it. And I'll take the same approach here. I don't want to talk about being lazy or slothful, or as the ESV says, lagging behind in zeal. But I want to talk about what it means to be aflame in your spirit with the Holy Spirit as you serve God, or to be aflame or fervent in the Holy Spirit. So as I think about being fervent or aflame in the Holy Spirit, let me give you two considerations. Number one, there's a book called Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards, and this is a wonderful book. He wrote when he was 43 years of age, right after the First Great Awakening. And Edwards says this, there's nothing that is more odious or stinky than affections that are not tied to the glory of Christ. And there's nothing so requisite in the life of a believer than to have affections that worship and adore the reality of Christ. He says there's nothing more odious than to find believers who have non-burning hearts, whose affections are not inflamed. And he says because there's nothing so requisite in the life of a Christian than to have affections that flow from the strong reality of Christ. And so he, he says, we should be people of deep affection. Now, I have good news. There, in five weeks, football season starts. It's good news. And, and there, there are people here who are going to be excited. There, there are people here who go two miles up the road, and, and they'll go to a stadium, and they're going to bring out Cocky, and he's going to be in this prison, and He's going to start rattling the bars, and the other band will play the theme from the Space Odyssey, or Thus Brock Zarathustra, and Cocky will break out, and the teams will come out smoke, and the stadium will shake, and it's, it's, it's wild. And then two, two hours up the road, there's a place called Clemson University, and the team will warm up, and then they'll go out, and they'll get on a bus, and the bus will go around the stadium, and I'm always hoping the bus driver does not get lost. You know, he takes a right and ends up in Powdersville, and we miss the game. But he goes around the stadium, then they get off the bus, and they clear, they run down the hill, and it's a, it's a holy moment. <laughs> okay, anyway, the Tigers come in, and people stand up, and they'll cheer, and they'll be glad. And that's good. That's good. You're a fan. This happened to me last week. I grew up without any knowledge of soccer, rural North Carolina. I, I don't like soccer. Uh, I know it's a great sport, requires great athleticism. I just have never followed soccer, and, and I'm just not a soccer fan. So, and that's not a criticism of soccer. It's more of a statement about me. So every four years, I'll watch a few games in the World Cup. I, I do that, you know, because everybody else does, and I want to be, you know. And so, and so... Last week I heard about the Women's World Cup, and they said they're playing Germany, and if they beat Germany, it's going to, they're, they're really Germany and the U.S. are the two best teams, and whoever wins that game will play, ended up Japan, and, and so I heard that the U.S. beat Germany, and, and then I heard that they were playing Sunday afternoon at 7 o'clock, and I said, I can do that. It comes on before 9 o'clock. I'm not in bed, so it comes on at 7 o'clock, and so I, I sat down over supper with some friends, and we were watching the World Cup. And I'm not a big soccer fan, but I was, I was watching it. And I went crazy. Um, the, in the second minute of the, of the game, 
there's this gal named Carly Lloyd, and I was, I was watching it, and they, they, they kicked a ball from the side, and she came in like a comet, and she knocked it off the side of her left foot and scored a goal. And we were cheering, and, you know, I was clapping. I said, USA. I mean, I'm an American. It's the day after the 4th of July. You know, you got to get into it, you know. And so I'm sitting there and said, wow, this is great. Two minutes later, she scores again. They do a kick from the side. She somehow gets around some people and makes a goal. Then there's a third goal. Just a few minutes later, the game's over. I mean, I haven't even... I've had two bites of my supper by this time. The game is over. And so the people there, we were saying, wow, that was, this is incredible. And I just, I was, I kept watching kind of, sort of. My friends were passing the food and, and I looked up and this Carly Lloyd girl from 60 yards out, I, I looked at her, she, she kicked and she scored a goal from 60 yards. If you haven't seen it, you seen it YouTube. And I, I just went, I just, I'd exploded. I jumped up, I started screaming and, and going, USA. I don't like soccer. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, I, this is a great sport. I, I just don't have appreciation for it. And I read later that that was maybe the greatest goal in the history of soccer, definitely women's soccer. Just the, the trajectory, and she looked up just to see the goalkeeper cheating, and she went, <laughs> now, that's the way I respond, because I have a vested interest, I'm an American, it's the day after the 4th of July, we're getting revenge on the Japanese who beat us four years ago when they should not have. And I, I just thought, how are my emotions when it comes to worshiping the glory of God in His triune mercy? What, how do I... How do, I, how do I live it out? So point number two is this. Hear me. There's one baptism in the Holy Spirit, but there are many feelings in the Holy Spirit. When you come to Jesus by faith, you receive the Holy Spirit. You're baptized in the Holy Spirit. But we are leaky buckets. We are balloons filled with helium that slowly go out. Our buckets sometimes, if you're in a, a difficult time in your life, you may have 15 or 20 pinpricks at the base of your bucket. Sometimes we always have five or six, but we are all leaky buckets. And we continuously come to God and say, God, by your Holy Spirit, anoint, fill, teach, and stir in my heart. I am, Lord, a leaky bucket. So I go to Ephesians chapter 5, a well-known passage where Paul talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. It starts off like this in verse 17. He says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. To the Lord with all of your heart. Now, so I, I go to this text and I, and I say, as, as I understand the scripture here, you understand the will of the Lord. Understand is a cognitive thinking word. How am I filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, I understand the goodness and glory of God in Jesus. I think about that. I ponder that. And as I ponder that and think that and make the most of my time, 
And I plead, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I don't want to come under the influence of, of, of wine or other issues. I want to come under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And as you do that, look at the text. As you do that, you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. See, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, once again, content. You're thinking Christians. You speak with content and knowledge. You understand the will of the Lord. So, so we should be thinking Christians. So, so I, I want to just address this issue now in the text. How do we live in such a way that we are aflame with the Holy Spirit? Not lagging behind in zeal, but we are aflame with the Holy Spirit. We're going for it. What do we do? Number one, we understand and glory in the tender mercies of God. Romans 12, verse 1, which shows itself in part, I'll have to go to the last part of this passage, in being devoted to prayer. We have a life of devotion to prayer. We're leaky buckets. We come to God in need. We wait upon the Lord. Let me read. There's, there are scores of verses in the Bible regarding waiting upon the Lord. Let me just read a few. This is Psalm 130, verses 5 and 6. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word do I hope. Waiting in expectation, waiting in longing, looking. I look to the Lord, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. Now, he says a watchman for the morning. In those days, a group of, of watchmen would, be, would guard the city during the night watch. And they would long for daylight when a new platoon of watchmen would come in and guard the city. So he says, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting on the Lord and longing for the Lord to speak more than a guy who's waiting for his shift to end when he can barely keep his eyes open. I'm desirous. I'm waiting on God. Waiting means to put yourself in a posture saying, Lord, speak to me, guide me, teach me. Church, wait upon the Lord. Look to him. A couple of other verses. Um, Isaiah, chapter 30, verse 8, 18 says this. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show you mercy. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Wait for him. Hosea 12, and verse 6 says this. The people of northern Israel, listen. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Now, what this means is that we look to God, we wait upon Him because we're people of, of need. We, we are leaky buckets. Everyone here is. I need a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit to live for Him. I've received the Spirit, but I need to, see, to receive the filling of the Holy Spirit. I come to God because he's unchanging and I change all the time. I come to God because he is all wisdom and I have limited knowledge. I come to God because he's complete in his beauty and his majesty and his holiness and I am in need. And that's why Paul says here, devote yourselves to prayer, which means to look to the Lord. 
to have a, a God awareness. I love the shorter catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, question 98, what is prayer? Answer, prayer is the offering up of our desires unto God in accordance with his will in the name of Jesus with the confession of my sin and in grateful acknowledgement of his mercies. I don't, you, can't, you, can't, you can't get any better than that. It's, it's an offering up of my desires to the Lord in ways that are acceptable to his will. In the name of Jesus, the only mediator, with the confession of my sins, showing my need and grateful acknowledgement of his tender mercies. Devote yourself to prayer. Now, here, here's an application, church. It's interesting. If you read biography, you, know, you talk to older saints that are going for it, and you say to them, what is it that you have done to keep you going strong and fast and to be aflame with the Spirit? Here's, this is going to be the response in the vast majority of cases. I spend daily time seeking God in prayer and Bible study. No holy pilgrimage? No, not, not, not really. No special incantation? No. I remember years ago talking to a man that I respect very much. In fact, Alan brought him in here. And just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. Godly man in his 70s. And um, I, I asked him, I said, well, I've told you this before, but I was just, that one, I said, what are you doing to be strong in your faith and vibrant and full of love and energy as an older man? And he said, I read the Bible every day and make application by the Holy Spirit. I said, and? I said, That's it. And other things. But what, here's, here's what I'm saying. Get up in the morning. Go to bed early enough to get up in the morning Spend 15, 30 minutes or so. This is what I do. I, I brought this up here. You can, go, you can go get something like this. This is my journal. I'm going to start a new one on Monday. It's almost over. And I'll get up, and I'll, I will, um, I'll, I'll read a little devotion called Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon. It's good. Sometimes it's great, but it's always good. And I'll usually write down a little sentence from Morning and Evening, Nothing major. You know, just, and then I, do, I have a Bible reading that takes me to the Bible every year. I click on it on the web. I read it. I'll write down a verse from my Bible reading. Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms every day. You know. and, and then there's maybe a passage I'm trying to memorize for that month. Two or three verses I'm trying to memorize. And so I'll write those out and I'll circle key words and try to get it word perfect as I pray it back to the Lord. And I might write it up, down a few things. It's nothing magical. These, these will never be published and make my wife and children wealthy when I die. First of all, you can't read them. It's embarrassing. You can't. But, but, but this is just what I do. I do it the first thing in the morning. And, and C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity. He said that the, the, one of the most compelling times in the Christian faith is when you get up in the morning and all of your concerns and cares come rushing out of the closet at you. It's your responsibility to push them back in the closet and to close and lock the door and to meet with God. You just meet with God. You get up in the morning. You have a plan. You think. You write, and you say, God, here I am. I'm waiting upon you. There's no magical formula to this. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes down with power. Sometimes I just do it, but you do it. 
And, and, and so I'm, I'm just saying that, that, that as, as, as you look at this, as you, you think about this, you, you, you know, you, you remember the tender mercies of God as you devote yourself to prayer. And then secondly, it says you, you rejoice in hope. As I've studied this, I thought, I'm not good at this. The hope of heaven. You, you rejoice in hope. And I just thought, you know, the Bible says that, that when you rejoice in hope, it leads to personal purity. 1 John 3 says everyone who has this hope, the hope of being with Christ in heaven, everyone who has this hope in him will purify himself just as he is pure. And if I want to be a pure man, I need to think about the glory of Christ and the wonders of heaven. 1 Thessalonians says, they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, who saves us from the coming wrath. So, so personal purity. Bear with me on this one. Hang in there. I think that rejoicing in the hope of heaven, which says that we live in a wonderful world that's a sinful world and the perfect has not yet come and we're in relationships that are oftentimes wonderful but they're never always totally wonderful all the time. It allows us to enjoy God's good gifts without demanding too much from people or things of a burden they were never meant to bear. Let me explain. So whenever you have a great meal or a wonderful vacation or see a glorious sunset, there's still a longing in your heart that says, oh, I wish this could last longer or I want more. And that longing, I think, is God's way of saying the best is yet to come. And, and so you come to relationships and you look at people or your spouse or your kids and, and, and you, when you, I love doing marriages, I love doing weddings, I love being there. And if a husband looks at his wife or wife looks at her husband and they say to one another, you are going to meet my deepest needs, your marriage will never succeed. Because you're marrying someone that cannot possibly do that. If you live in light of the cross, your marriage can succeed. If you look at your kids and say, you as my child, are you going to validate my existence as a human being? You're in for a long experience as a parent or a grandparent. Because you know what? Those kids came from an imperfect gene pool. Even if they were adopted, gloriously adopted, because all humans are fallen. There's a book, and I recommend this book. It's one of the top, it's not in the top 10 books, but it's one of the top 25 books on marriage just for conversation piece. His needs, her needs. Some of you have read it. Five needs of a woman, five needs of a man. Five needs of a man. Sexual fulfillment. An attractive spouse. Domestic tranquility. Affirmation and a and more affirmation and recreational companionship. That's what we need as men. Now think about that. Sexual fulfillment, I need to address that. We need admiration. So wives, when your husband comes home at night, Caesar has arrived. <laughs> Hail Caesar. And I mean H-A-I-L, Caesar, okay? Uh, domestic tranquility. We want peace and harmony and joy and laughter when we tell the joke. 
recreational companionship. We want you to be with us if we play rugby or go mudding. An attractive spouse. Give her the program. I thought, you know, if, if, if a husband goes to a, his marriage and says, you've got to do this, this, and this, we gotta, here are the needs of a wife. I, I, I can always remember my needs, but I have, I can sometimes I only get three out of the five. <laughs> so uh, uh, financial, financial, uh, financial backing, financial whatever, financial thing, okay. Yeah, family, commitment to family, uh, a conversation, openness, <laughs> really, uh, openness, and uh, there's always, I can't remember all five of them, but, but, but I, I always laugh because all the women's needs are about relationship and being caring. All the men's are self-centered. It's an indictment on us guys. That's beside the point. If you go into a marriage and you say, you got to do this, this, and this, but, but, but if you understand the glory of heaven, I don't want you to shoot too low. I don't want you to shoot too high. I understand you live in a fallen world. It's never going to be perfect. You're never going to be free of sin. There's never going to be a perfect marriage. And you, you work through issues. You confess. You, you pray. You press. You take walks. You say, God, help me by the Holy Spirit to love my family. That's where the Lord wants us. And that's where we live. So, so, so the hope of heaven helps us to not put a burden on someone they were never meant to bear. Thirdly, the hope of heaven helps us to live without, in, a, in an imperfect world without always having justice visited upon those that have wronged us. This is interesting to me because later in this chapter, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, so I read this and I go, you know, some people, they got to have justice now. But the scripture says here, you know, chapter 13 says, The government authorities bring justice, but if they miss that net and if they get off scot-free, they answer to God. I, I read a book about five months ago called The Nazi Next Door, and it's about, and I've read several books about this, about, quote, Nazi hunters, people who for 30 and 40 and 50 years, and 60 years now, have, have, have gone after people in the U.S. or Canada or Argentina who, who slipped out, changed their names, and they were notorious guards at Treblinka or Auschwitz or Dachau, and they brought them to justice, and it talks about all these people and their families discovering that they were Nazi henchmen and the horror and the shame that's visited upon the family. It's an incredible book. But part of my, part of my reading of this book, I'm going, they, they got one guy 60 years afterwards. I mean, he's 98. And I thought, to a degree, I believe in justice, but to a degree, I would hate to give my life to hunting down 95-year-old Nazis. To me, I'm going... And you do that, listen, you do that, I believe, when you don't believe that there's a God to whom they'll answer. And the judgment at the justice seat of the living God is a whole lot worse than any court they'll face at Nuremberg, I promise you. So, so to me, the hope of heaven satisfies my, my craving for, for justice. And here's my application to myself. That the hope of heaven makes me a better steward. 
I don't have to have bigger barns. Luke chapter 12, a guy says, I'm going to build bigger barns. And, and Jesus says, you know, he's a fool because tonight he's going to forfeit his life to, before God. He has no thought of God. Bigger barns. I, I'm, I love Bucket List. I love the movie Bucket List. Two great actors. Just a one. And people say, well, this is on my bucket list and that's on my bucket list. Some people here say, well, you know, viewing the Great Barrier Reef in Australia is on my bucket list. Or going to Patagonia in South America and seeing those incredible wildlife. It's on my bucket list. That's wonderful. I'm all for that. But in reality, if I don't make it to the Great Barrier Reef, and I'd like to go to the Great Barrier Reef, the Great Barrier Reef is a foretaste of the beauty of heaven. You know, the Great Barrier Reef is just a taste of the banquet of heaven. And, and so, I'm a good steward. I, I want to honor God. So, so to, to do this in my life, I, I want to take a side that just stop two or three times a week and just stop. Just sit down, be quiet, and think about the glory of heaven. Think about, for example, in Romans 8, Paul says, I'm, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He goes on and says that the creation is groaning, is groaning. He says, we are groaning for our full adoption of sons, we, we live in the almost but the not yet. And we say, God, this is glorious, but I want more, and the more is heaven. And, and when you, we live in this incredibly beautiful city, wow, Charleston, South Carolina. And you go across these bridges, and you look out at the expanse of the, 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 the panoramic views, and you, you just stop and you say, God, Thank you for giving me eyes to see beauty. And I rejoice that this is a foretaste of the glory divine. This is just a drop in the ocean of beauty that I will see one day. And so God built eternity in my heart. And thirdly, he says this. He says, be patient in tribulation. Be patient in tribulation. We all go through difficult times, some very hard times, but we believe in the good shepherd who guards us and guides us, so we're patient. The word for being patient tribulation means to stand your guard, to not waver, to maintain the belief or course of action in the face of opposition. Be patient. Trust the Lord. As I was thinking about this, I was drawn to Hebrews chapter 13, where there's some more brief, pithy exhortations given. And chapter 13, verse 3 says this, and listen to me. The scripture says, remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are, are in the same body. Remember brothers and sisters in prison for their faith as if you were in prison with them because remembers 
of one body. And I, I, I thought, God, forgive me for being so myopic. Forgive me. I was thinking about this, and Craig and Rafia Harris have been in South Asia for the last 13 years, and he's got, Craig's gotten all these leaders who speak to different places in Bangladesh and Pakistan and India. He said, I got an email on Friday from a, a man who said, talked about a friend who had been killed. He said, 15 years ago when the church in Kashmir in northern India was just starting to grow, and they've seen the church grow there, but just kind of taking off that there was a man who was baptized, and the Kashmiris wear several layers of clothing. When he came up out of the water, he took his outer tunic, and he threw it down the river, symbolizing the old man is dead, the new man is here, which is what baptism means. And from that point forward, when churches, people in that part of Kashmir in northern India were baptized, they would take off the outer tunic and up several layers of clothing and throw it down the river. Well, on Friday morning of this week, a militant Muslim went to this man's house who's a leader in the church and shot and killed him. Left behind three children. And I thought, our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for their faith, and then I thought how I have not said enough about, for example, ISIS. I was reading some articles about ISIS recently and it says that, uh, for example, the city of Mosul, you've heard of that city in the news. Mosul used to have a, a strong, historic Christian community. Now there are no Christians. Their homes have been burned, they've been forced out of their homes, or they've been killed. And a man went there and did a news story. He was writing a book, and he said, I heard one Iraqi nun who's taking care of thousands of people, Christians primarily, but also Muslims and Yazidas. A Yazidas is a syncretistic religion of, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And she told me, she said, I lived in America. You have wonderful people. I have an education from an American college. I love America, but I don't understand why you won't help your Christians, brothers and sisters. He said, you take such good care of your pets, why won't you take care of us? And then I read about, in northern Iraq today, uh, there are little girls aged one to nine being sold into slavery for $170 each. And I said, God, God forgive us for not crying out. For every time we're together, not crying out, God have mercy on these people. And he went on and said this. He said, the beheadings of the believers in Ethiopia and Libya had videos broadcast. And at the bottom of the video, as these beheadings were broadcast, says, this is a message to the nation of the cross. That. And he writes, they're killing lots of people. They've killed more Muslims than anyone else. You know, the Sunnis are killing the Shia. They're targeting minorities, but especially Christians. Their war against Christians is not a tertiary issue or, you know, distant, but it's primary to their plan. It's the centerpiece. And I, I just read that and I thought, our people are going through tribulation. And I, and I thought about us, and I thought about our city, and what happened at Emmanuel AME, and how these dear people responded. And then I thought about, you know, the Supreme Court ruling, and I've had people say to me, you know, if we, 
if, if you preach that same-sex marriage is against God's law, we could incur some problems. You know, I'm going to start saying to people, thank you for saying that. They're beheading people in Iraq. I think we can teach the Bible. And if we lose our taxes in status and they close us down, we'll meet somewhere else. Or oh, people say, we, we can't say this. And I said, listen, they're beheading people. They're shooting people in Kashmir. I say, God, do not, do not forget that we're called to be aflame with the Holy Spirit. And we're aflame with the Holy Spirit as we remember the tender mercies of God and as we're devoted to prayer and as we rejoice in hope and as we're patient in tribulation, as we remember our brothers and our sisters. So God, give us grace to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the day that you've given us and we're so thankful that we can pick up a book called the Bible and read it and we hear from you. It's amazing. And I thank you that you told this minority church in Rome, surrounded by all types of belief systems, surrounded by coming horrendous persecution. Do not be lacking in zeal, but be aflame in the spirit as you serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Devote yourselves to prayer. We want to do that, Lord. We want to be people who are aflame in the Spirit. And, and Lord, make us aflame as we rejoice in our hope and as we are patient in tribulation and as we devote ourselves to prayer. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us afresh. Give us fresh anointings. Empower us to be your people to speak the word of Christ with dignity and love, to love all kinds of people everywhere and to embrace and love and serve because all people made in the image of God and all people are worthy of respect and, and, and Christian love. Even if they don't like us or despise us, they're still worthy of respect and Christian love. So come Holy Spirit, teach us to do that and to love and care and serve and expand your church. In Jesus' name, amen.